Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of Miguel Cares, a new weekly webcast series addressing a wide variety of topics to support the needs of family and informal caregivers. I'm Claire Webster, a former caregiver, certified Alzheimer care consultant, and founder of the McGill Dementia Education Program, an initiative for family caregivers, informal caregivers, healthcare professionals, and medical students. Today, I have the great privilege of interviewing my colleague, Dr. Serge Gauthier, who is the co-academic lead of the McGill Dementia Education Program. Dr. Gauthier is a director of the Alzheimer's Disease and Related Disorders Research Unit of the McGill Center for Studies in Aging and a professor in the Department of Neurology and Neurosurgery, Psychiatry and Medicine at McGill University. Dr. Gauthier was appointed to the Order of Canada in 2014 and the Order National de Quebec in 2017 for his contributions to advancing our understanding of Alzheimer's disease and dementia and for fostering the development of research networks. Welcome, Dr. Gauthier. I'm very, very uh, grateful to have you here. Who would have thought uh, in 2006, when I was in the doctor's office with my mom, getting the diagnosis from my own mom, that I would ever be here interviewing one of the leading neurologists, uh, not only in our province, but in our country. Um, very grateful to have you. Pleasure. So we've known each other for quite a few years. I must say, you you are not my doctor. I did not have the, the privilege to have you as my doctor, but we've known each other for a few years through a lot of the advocacy work that I've done um, in this field for a long time. And I've always known you as somebody who's incredibly passionate for the work that you're doing. Um, can you just you know, give me an idea of you know, what made you become interested in the field of dementia? Actually, it's a one lady who came from Trois-Rivières, with her husband and two daughters who were teenagers. And she was only 33, a nurse with Alzheimer. And they didn't know you can have Alzheimer so young. In those days, everybody thought it was old people. But then I discovered uh, familial Alzheimer is here at, in, in Quebec. And uh, I made a promise to myself um, 30 years ago that I will find something for these young people to prevent the disease since they have it at birth. There must be something we can give them early in their life to, to delay the onset of symptoms. Mm -hmm. And how many patients would you say that you have seen over, over the, you know, your, throughout your career? How many patients have you seen? It's hard to have a number, but <laughs> when I do my groceries, everybody says, oh, you take care of my dad. So hundreds, obviously, yes. Yeah. So today we're going to be discussing um, understanding dementia. And probably one of the, the most important questions, I mean, every, every question is going to be important, but how can we really distinguish between depression, dementia, and Alzheimer's disease? Well, you can have all three, but the short answer is uh, Alzheimer's disease is a brain condition that can be silent all your life and you die of something else, or it can be something in your brain and then it, it, it comes out because you had a stroke or you have another condition on top of Alzheimer, like Parkinson on top, or it may show up as depression, um, usually over age 65. And uh, the final general introduction to the topic is dementia is a late stage of Alzheimer disease. And our hope is to delay this stage of Alzheimer in most people. Okay. Now, a lot of people ask me the question of what is the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's disease? Can you explain that? Yeah, we get asked all the time. Yeah. So 
the, in the old days, that's before 10 years ago, you had to have dementia first diagnosed clinically, which means decline in your ability to think, uh, affecting your daily life for at least six months, not caused by depression. Now we know you can have Alzheimer long before you get any symptoms, at least 20 years. And it could be dormant in your brain. Okay. It may never cause symptoms or you could be brought out by other factors. So okay. there's a late stage of Alzheimer's disease okay. and Alzheimer's disease is the most common cause of dementia over age 65. Now there's like an umbrella term, right? When we say there's dementia and there's different types. Can you kind of like explain what are the most common different types of dementia? We actually, it's not so hard because over age 65, the number one is Alzheimer, but you can have over 85 mixed cause, small strokes, Parkinson mixed in with Alzheimer. So 65 to 85 is where you have usually Alzheimer without other conditions. Very rare Alzheimer as a cause of dementia before age 65, then you get into less common conditions like frontotemporal dementia and rare, rare diseases. Out of all of the different types of dementias, like what would you think, or what would you describe as the most difficult one of those types of dementias to manage? I mean, I hear a lot about frontal temporal. Would you say that would be? Yeah, that's the hardest one because people uh, have their mind still quite intact. They can still drive, but they lose their ability to uh, control their emotions and behavior. And um, other people with the same disease can have only speech impairment. This is one of the very puzzling fact about frontotemporal dementia. You can have only speech problems, aphasia, or you have only behavior problems. Hmm. And sometimes in between, you have people who have ALS, Lou Gehrig disease, mixed hmm. in with these other symptoms. And is it true that with regards to frontotemporal dementia, it normally affects people like in their early 60s, like it affects a younger demographic you, of people? 50, 50 to 65 okay. in the yeah, and why is that? And why um, is that? Well, we don't know the exact cause. There's more than one, obviously. There's multiple genes at play in frontotemporal dementia. It's actually a more complex disease than Alzheimer's, surprisingly, for your audience, perhaps. And we're also hearing a lot about early onset dementia, you know, um, people who are, you know, in their early 50s. Is there, I mean, would you say that there's a correlation at all between concussions and early onset? Like what, what could be causing the, the early onset? So early onset simply means before age 65. Okay. And as we said, it's less common to be Alzheimer's as a cause, could be other conditions. Um, now the head injury story is relatively new. So football players who had multiple mm -hmm. concussions, they have a dementia that resembles Alzheimer's but not quite the same. It's like boxers, there's a punch drunk syndrome that looks a bit like Alzheimer's, but it's not quite the same. It's too early to tell if people who had multiple concussions at sports or other accidents are more at risk of dementia and what mm -hmm. kind of dementia. It's too early to tell. Okay, so can you tell us what are the early symptoms of Alzheimer's disease? You know, like what is the difference between normal aging and not normal aging? You know, like if I, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for my keys or I'm always looking for my glasses. I'm always looking for my wallet. Like people are always thinking, or, you know, sometimes you, you see somebody and you forget their name. Like what, what would be some of the early symptoms? So most people over age 65 who have early Alzheimer's will have trouble with their memory for recent events. So they'll remember things from the distant past, but they may forget what they did yesterday or who called and so on. 
But as you said, this is not specific. It can happen to anyone at any age if your mind is too busy or you're a little depressed or anxious. But uh, with Alzheimer, there's a pattern of progression. So over a year or two, these mild uh, forgetfulness episodes uh, start to interfere with your ability to pay your bills on time or uh, to remember birthdays, especially grandmothers. That's a very important thing to ask mm -hmm. about. So it, when it starts affecting daily life, it gets a little more serious, and then you should see a physician. Uh, it could be a, your family doctor. If needed, you go to a specialist. Um, most people, after two, three years of only memory lapses, they will have difficulty with words, which mm -hmm. can be occasional. So what's, what, what, give me the thing. What do you call it? Or they could have trouble finding their car in the parking lot. Again, it can happen to anyone at times, but this now becomes more common. Now, throughout these two, three years of mild symptoms, you can have uh, irritability, you get upset at yourself, um, you may have social withdrawal because you look for words, so you're not gonna be as vocal as you used to be. So there's also psychological changes, even in the early stage. I found that very interesting because my, my that, those were the symptoms for my mother. For My mother never, at the beginning, had no memory issues, but it was a significant change in personality right after my father had passed away. You know, trouble finding words, yeah, but I really, you know, for a complete change in personality, the words that she was using, and at first I thought she was perhaps depressed, but, you know, more and more using words she had never used before, you know, with my children, calling them names, um, and this, and the social withdrawal I found very, very, that really stuck, stood out. Um, for her, but I, I, it's interesting because I think the majority of people associate dementia with memory loss. They think that that's the only symptom, not realizing that it could be a change in, in, in personality. So how do you make a diagnosis of dementia? Like what, what are the steps that families should expect when they come to, to, to see you or a geriatrician? So the first step is to realize there could be a problem because many families will find excuses like uh, grandma is uh, old or she's lonely, um, but then the, the, some birthdays are missed and that's something new. Um, or she, she called because she got lost somewhere. So there's some kind of event that will bring the family, usually the family, not the person mm -hmm. with mild dementia to the doctor. And then we go through the history carefully with the family or friend and the person. We do some basic memory tests. Most of the time we have to repeat them after six months to see if there's a progression over time. We also look for depression that could be mixed with this early dementia stage and treat the depression. And then after six months we reassess. So it's not something you do usually on the first visit. And what is the mocha? Can you just explain that a little bit, please? The mocha so the test? It's not a cake. It's a short <laughs> Montreal cognitive assessment. It's a beautiful test developed by a neurologist in Montreal, Dr. Nazreddin. And uh, it's a test that can be done um, or in person. <clears throat> you have to be with the person. We try to do it online, but there's some things you cannot do easily. It's out of 30 points. And uh, it's uh, some drawing, some remembering word, uh, distractions, and then what were the words. So out of 30 points, the average person gets 26 out of 30 because you're not sure of the date and so on. That's normal. If you go below 25 out of 30, there could be a problem that could be many things, not necessarily dementia or Alzheimer. So it's really a snapshot of how you're performing. But where you make mistakes can give us a clue what's going on. Like if you forgot all five words, 
it could be something different from you cannot find words. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not the total score alone that is meaningful out of that test. It's where the mistakes are. So it's a very what beautiful. Is, what is symbolic about asking the person to draw the clock? Because I remember my mom being asked, like, what is, what is symbolic about that? Well, the clock test is actually very simple. You draw the circle, you put the numbers, and you're asked to set the time, usually mm -hmm. 10, 11. Most people with mild dementia due to Alzheimer's, they will have a mistake for the hands of the clock. At a slightly later stage, they have trouble with the numbers being mm -hmm. in line. Three and nine are not in line. That's not specific. It could be a small stroke. It could be you were never good at drawing clocks, mm -hmm. especially the young kids who are digital. So. But as a complementary test to the, to the other tests we do, it's very useful. So can you tell us what are the seven stages of Alzheimer's disease, like to, to take us through the journey and really how long does it last? You know, we know it's a terminal illness. Um, so what, what, is the, what is the journey? So the traditional way to stage Alzheimer was to wait for dementia and then you call it mild, moderate or severe. But now that we know Alzheimer's starts before dementia, you need the full seven stages in your mind. So stage one is all of us. We're getting older. So one chance out of four to get Alzheimer if you live long enough. No symptoms. Stage two, you, you forget occasional things, but sort of no, don't worry about it too much. Nobody else is worrying about it. It's like us on Fridays. Three <laughs> out of seven, um, you start to worry about it. Maybe not your family. And if we test you with the mocha, you forget three, four words out of five. So there's a subtle decline that's measurable, but you still pay your bills on time. You still drive your car well, no impairment, no dementia. Stage four, early dementia. So now we have impairment of some aspect of your daily life. Stage five, you're not driving anymore. Somebody takes care of your bills. You're not cooking alone. Stage six, you usually have trouble holding your urine. Uh, you don't know how to use a shower, especially if you're in a hotel with those fancy uh, new gadgets. Stage seven, it's the, late, the last stage where you have difficulty walking and swallowing and you die of pneumonia. Yeah, and it lasts approximately like so from years that this could go on for? So it's usually eight years from the time dementia is recognized. So stage four to seven on average is eight years. Okay. And what role does medication play? You know, like I know at the beginning, my mother had been uh, prescribed Aricep. It didn't do anything for her, but what role did, does medication play? Are there any advances in helping, you know, prolong the... So there's different medications that can help. Uh, depression, of course, is very common at the start of the illness when people mm -hmm. still have insight. So mm -hmm. most people will try uh, medications that are standard for depression such as Velnefexin or Citalopram, that sort of medicine. If people want to try something to improve their memory and attention, there's Aricep-like drugs. There's three of them. Donepezil is the, the, the generic name for Aricep. Mm -hmm. Rivastigmin, which is often used as a patch instead of a pill, and Galantamine. These three medicines have been around for 12 years or so. They increase acetylcholine levels in your brain. And half of the people have some effect that is obvious to the family. They go back to hobbies they gave up on. Mm -hmm. They don't ask the same question five times, maybe twice. Mm -hmm. uh, it's important enough that the people take these medicines for usually one or two years. And then so, there's a third class of medicine just to round this up yeah. called 
hematin, which affects uh, the, another brain chemical called GABA. And um, this is more for the moderate to severe stage of dementia where there's behavioral problems, especially getting up at night and looking for words more. So mematin may help at that stage. Okay. And so for a lot of people, because I, I'm the majority of the time, the person who has the early stages of dementia doesn't necessarily see it in, in themselves. They're in denial of this happening. So, uh, you know, for the, for the family members who notice the signs and want to take their loved one to see a doctor, oftentimes there's resistance from the family member to go and, and see a doctor. I mean, how, I mean, do, have you had situations like that where you've had to kind of like coach the sons or the daughters or the husbands or wives? Like how do, how do people get their loved one to see a doctor when they're resisting going for the test? So there's different uh, tricks you can use such as the spouse comes uh, with the person who has symptoms and they come for checkup, two of them together. Uh -huh. um, it's actually easier now than it used to be 10 years ago to go get a memory checkup, honestly, uh -huh. because pretty complaints about their memory. Mm -hmm. As you said, most people with early Alzheimer won't think they have dementia, but they mm -hmm. will acknowledge they have a memory problem. And that's something they can live with. And by the time it's progressed to dementia, to a moderate stage, they don't really care, whatever you call it. Mm -hmm. How many people, you know, or the percentage, realize what's actually happening to them? Because for example, I get a lot of questions now from family members who have loved ones in the residences and who, who family had the family member, the person who had the dementia had to stay in the residence. They weren't able to come out. And so family members are really concerned about, are their parents aware of what's going on, aware of what's happening to them? At what stage is the person maybe no longer aware or are they aware? So this is an um, important uh, question indeed. Uh, anosognosia, that's the medical term for not being aware that you have an illness. Mm -hmm. It's very common in early Alzheimer's, which is good for the patient in a way that they don't get anxious over it so much. It's harder on the family members. Some patients, so maybe 80% of people with Alzheimer's have enough, uh, not lack of awareness is the best way to put it, mm -hmm. rather than denial actually, and uh, good for them. Uh, mm -hmm. So they want to drive, uh, then there's an issue about, mm -hmm. no, you cannot drive, mm -hmm. and then you have to, another question, perhaps, you may be interested in, how do you deal with that? So when you're in the moderate to severe stage of dementia, like 95% of people are not aware that they have a dementia, but they're aware they're not at home, they're not with their family member, so that's a different kind of question. Okay. The topic of driving, since you've brought it up, uh, is, a, is a very difficult um, topic for many family members when it comes to having to make that decision to remove the person's license. There's two, the, the taking away the driving and taking away bank cards, credit cards, etc. How do you help families navigate those decisions? At what point should a person stop driving or stop using their, their bank cards, bank account? So that's one of the topics we have to cover uh, even from day one, the first visit, mm -hmm. just as a mise en context. Not to take away the license, but rather to know, are you driving? Where do you go? Do you go alone? Most people actually go with somebody else, so there's not so much an issue. In Quebec, for instance, uh, the, the permit can be continued uh, if there's an adult with you. Because most difficulties in um, mild dementia is directions. Not, not the, the driving itself, not the braking and stopping and right. going, red lights and so on. 
it's really directions. And that can be handled by staying in familiar areas or having someone with you. Uh, we ask at every visit, are you still driving, any issue? And then uh, there comes a point where somebody in the family is gonna raise a flag and say, there was an incident. So it was a minor scrape, there was, uh, he got lost, and then, uh, then we suggest a road test. And the road test, about half of the patients with mild dementia will be successful. But then they have to have the road test again a year later, and they say, well, I don't wanna go, I'm done. And then they get a tax credit. Most people with Alzheimer, that's the sort of bad news, good news thing. You don't drive anymore, but you, your government will give you $6,000 tax credits mm. because you have lost some autonomy. Mm. It's not the driving itself that gives you the credit. It's a loss of autonomy. And that's Is this a, a federal credit or a provincial credit or a federal credit? 3,000 federal, yeah. 3,000 yeah. provincial. Every year, yeah. the rest okay. of your life. Okay. And same, same thing for the banks, like what about, what about when is it timed? I mean, I hear oftentimes of family members going to the bank and the person with dementia is saying their PIN number out loud or, you know, not okay. remember. So that's another important topic. We also yeah. come from the first visit, who's handling the bills? Mm -hmm. And um, is there a backup? Is there a power of attorney? Is mm -hmm. there a mandate in case of incapacity? We make a point that everybody, including the caregiver, the family members all should have such a paper done. So it's not just the person with dementia. So I'm glad you said that. So it is important for family members to have that mandate prepared from the very beginning, correct? Yes, absolutely. And power of attorney in addition, which makes it a lot easier dealing with the bank without having to go all the way through going to court for the mandate to become a curatorship. Okay. I think I'm going to end up having a whole topic, just webcast on the whole mandate, because I, I see situations where family members have tried to intervene and take over the banking for, for uh, their loved one with dementia. And unless they have that mandate, the bank is, is going to continue to allow the person to write checks, withdraw funds, all kinds of errors can be made. So that's really important from the beginning. Um, could you, you know, maybe give some examples of some of the most common uh, challenging behavioral symptoms that caregivers are faced? Because sometimes people don't don't realize that is it normal for my loved one to ask the same question, you know, fifty times a day? Like, what are some of the most challenging behaviors? The most common is actually apathy, withdrawal, but it's the least troublesome from the family perspective. Grandpa is quiet now. He's not so much uh, storyteller, mm -hmm. boisterous, and so on. Actually, the medicines you mentioned, Adicept-like drugs, sometimes they bring people back to be more um, interacting with the family, which is mm -hmm. a good thing. So apathy is the most common, but the least troublesome. What is the most troublesome is being up at night and not mm -hmm. being aware it's nighttime and being up and wanting to go to work. That can really uh, wear down caregivers, uh, and then people ask for a sleeping pill, but it's not that simple actually to manage. And then in between, you have different behaviors that perhaps have to do with personality before you get dementia. So if you were a little cheap with money, you get more suspicious about money, yeah. a little jealous uh, with your wife or husband, it could get a little worse. And finally, you have people who are just quiet, happy, good for them, good for the family. It's interesting that the, I mean, of the couple, also a couple hundred families that I've worked with, the paranoia seems to come into play, like from the very beginning, that conspiracy theory of somebody stealing my money, or when it, if it's a spouse, somebody's cheating on me, I'm sure you're cheating on me. I mean, that comes up over and over again. Like, what, why is it those two aspects? Do you know? Well, oftentimes, it's just personality traits that got accentuated. 
because of the dementia. It's rare that you had no such symptoms uh, in your life and then mm -hmm. suddenly you, 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 you change dramatically, but it could happen as well. Okay. Uh, the other thing that happens a lot is um, irritability from mm -hmm. the person with dementia because you're taking away privilege, no more driving, you cannot go to the bank. So there's, that's part, part of the things you teach family members is just distract people when they get upset about something. There's a whole uh, hour talk I'm sure you could give on yeah. how to deal with this loss of control that people yeah. feel as they progress through the illness. So, I mean, the whole mission of the McGill Dementia Education Program, I mean, it was established to really educate family and informal caregivers on how to care for their loved ones. Would you agree that, you know, becoming as educated as possible about the disease and seeking out support services from the very beginning is the key to really being the best? Yeah, is to it's, key to the, it's the key. It's not uh, looking for a miracle cure, which we don't have in the near future. The cure is rather education. Uh, so families can understand what's happening and try to anticipate what's happening in a year so they can plan ahead. Mm -hmm. And with, with regards to the cure, I mean, you know, I, I, I believe I recently saw something that McGill published that you were involved with, with regards to blood tests, being able to detect early symptoms. I mean, where are we on the scale of finding a cure or research? Where are we right now? Well, there's a lot of things happening even during the COVID pandemic. Thank God, there's still mm -hmm. much going on. What we published recently in Lancet Neurology is a blood test designed uh, in Sweden, and mm -hmm. they had Canadian patients uh, get gave blood, and we were able to show the blood test reflects what's going on in their brain, whether they have symptoms or not. And this will speed up rec uh, recruitment, finding mm -hmm. people, for future trials. And also we're shifting to treat not just one protein built up in the brain, but two proteins built up in the brain. And inflammation may be the third factor which we can modify as an accelerating factor. And so what could people do to prevent getting dementia? I mean, what would be a little bit piece of pieces of advice just to prevent? Well, if you have high blood pressure, you treat it well. If you have diabetes, you treat it well. And then everybody should be active physically, get a dog. Um, <laughs> do um, also intellectually active listen to webcasts uh, like this one um, so active physically intellectually good food reasonable amount of red wine have a good life these are general advice for everyone who's getting older mm -hmm. what we hope is that the 10 percent among people who are getting older who have higher risk because of genetic makeup mm -hmm. or because they already have some of these proteins in their brain there's something extra we will do for them eventually. Okay, and um, oh, see, I just had a, I just had a moment blank. I was going to ask you another question, and I, I just had a, I had a blank. Um, no, here's the question: Was, is it hereditary? Just to end, that was one of the last questions I wanted yeah, to ask. Yeah, I gave you a hint that some people are more at risk because of. <laughs> I just you're telling me all this, and I was like, is there? What is? So, what is the? The short answer is uh, there's very rare familial Alzheimer before age 65, like my 33-year-old nurse mm -hmm. that got me into Alzheimer in the first place. Yeah. This is less than 1% of all people with Alzheimer worldwide. It's mm -hmm. very rare. It's a gene yeah. you have at birth. You get the disease, same age as your parent, brother, mother, father. Mm -hmm. Most common gene involved is 65 to 80. It's a APOE4. 
It's a gene that 15% uh, of the population carries. Uh, Jude Poirier is the one who discovered it 25 years ago here in Montreal. It's an easy test to do, just swab your cheek, but it does not cause Alzheimer. It just increases your risk. So it could be part of the new way to look at risk in people who want to know at 50, 60, what's my risk and what, do, what am I gonna do about it? Mm -hmm. Well, our time together has gone by so quickly and I'm so incredibly grateful to have this time to speak with you. And for everyone out there who would like to hear, get some more information, uh, Dr. Gauthier and Dr. Poirier, and Dr. Poirier have published a great book called La Maladie d'Alzheimer. Uh, I know that you mentioned that it's available at Renault Bray and I believe it's also available at Amazon. Um, is it only in French or is it available in English as well? edition is available in English as well with Dunton Press. Mm -hmm. It's also available in um, multiple languages, including Mandarin. Oh, the okay. It just came out is in French for now. Well, Dr. Gauthier, thank you so much. I'm so grateful to not only have you on the webcast today, but also to have the privilege to work uh, with you and Dr. Moret uh, on the McGill Dementia Education Program. Uh, next week, I will be... Uh, interviewing my other wonderful colleague, Dr. José Moret. Uh, we will be discussing support and safety during the COVID crisis. Dr. Moret is the professor and director of geriatric medicine in the Faculty of Medicine at the NUHC and the Je Jewish General Hospital. Dr. Moret will speak about how seniors are being affected by the COVID crisis and how they can stay safe and health healthy during this difficult period. Um, just to let everybody know that this webcast is an initiative of the McGill Dementia Education Program, which is funded by private donations. Um, if you'd like to make a contribution so that we can keep doing what we're doing, or to have more information about our program, please visit www.mcgill.ca slash dementia. And if, you'd if you have specific topics or questions that you'd like us to address during our weekly webcasts, please email us at dementia at mcgill.ca. I actually personally respond to the emails. Um, and I also have a great ass assistant, Maria Vincelli, who's our program coordinator, that if I'm not available, she will be responding to you as well. So until next week, take good care of yourselves and your loved ones. And thanks for tuning in. <laughs>